Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. to accompany me to dinner sabrina why don't you dance a little christy get down on your knees we're not through yet welcome to rewatchability it is the podcast where we rewatch old movies and see how they hold up in the modern eye Sometimes we're amazed, sometimes surprised. Sometimes we're shocked, sometimes appalled. <laughs> appalled is maybe this week's theme. Yeah. What? No. What do you, what do you mean, appalled? <laughs> this is a classic of cinema that we're talking about. I was talking about the Goofy movie. It's appalling. <laughs> no, we have a contentious movie to talk about mm. this week. But before we get into that, we want to thank our Patreons. Those are the people who donate a little bit of money each week. Could be one, could be three, could be five dollars. And that helps us keep the podcast going. And in return, we give you perks like having the podcast early. And ad-free. That's right. And sometimes you get a podcast just for you, those who, who give us uh, around five bucks a month. That's right. And last month's Patreon bonus featured one of the stars of this movie. Oh, yeah, it did. It did. And a much more depressing movie, and that's hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. You'll never say that this actor is a hack. <laughs> nope. But he has been hacked. Yes, for sure. <laughs> Not in the internet way. <laughs> so you can go to uh, patreon.com slash rewatchability, and you can donate there if you want to support us. Yeah. That'd be really great. Thank you. Today we're going to talk about American Psycho. It is the 2000... Movie about murdering. <laughs> you tried to pick a genre and then couldn't. I you saw know. that in your face. It's like maybe a horror film, maybe a, a comedy. I would say it's a comedic psycho thriller. Oh, nice. Yeah. I like it. Or maybe that's what it said on IMDb. <laughs> One of those. Okay. Yeah, those are a dime a dozen. There's so many of those. But it is the 2000 movie directed by Mary Heron, based off the book by Brett Easton Ellis. Mm-hmm. And... I thought it would be interesting to talk about because, I mean, a lot of movies we talk about, we have to compare to whether or not they 
have anything to do with a current moment of history that we're oh. all enduring. Right. Yeah. But also but America and Psycho. <laughs> you know, you might be able to put those two together lately. Yeah, there yeah. could be something about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, Brett Easton Ellis, who wrote the book that American Psycho is based off of, and today that we're recording is World Book Day. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Coincidence? Yeah, let's, we it should is. be talking about the book. <laughs> Brett Ellis, Easton Ellis has been in the... <laughs> he has uh, so many names. Too Ellis many names. Twice. It's crazy. So Brett has been in the news lately. <laughs> <laughs> because he's a famously contentious fellow. He wrote mm. this book, which was a huge scandal. We'll talk about it later. Mm-hmm. But he's also kind of a, a self-styled provocateur. Okay. He doesn't like politically correctness. He oh, just wrote a book called White. Okay. Problematic. Where right. he <laughs> talks about things like whether or not people's reaction over Donald Trump has been hysterical. Right. Oh, it's good that he's using the word hysterical, too. That doesn't come with his own baggage. <laughs> well, that's that's also true. So he's <laughs> definitely a contentious figure. And there was a interview by Isaac Choitner, I think his name is, so I'm probably not pronouncing it right, mm. who basically took him to task. And it was also going over the Internet because it's kind of delightful to see somebody like this take an ass kicking. Right. It's kind of like the Jordan Peterson up here in Canada. We have Jordan Peterson, who's, I guess, famous world around for being similarly contentious and kind of just an overall prick about uh, these issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. But at the same time, I also feel as a person who can be contentious myself that Mm -hmm. I sometimes think that, like, we could take too much joy in the uh, (laughs) dunking on of these figures Right. Sometimes. And like shitty opinions are shitty opinions. And, you know, obviously I don't think any racist, sexist, homophobic, misogynistic stuff should be tolerated. But I think as people who are supposed to be progressive, like we're supposed to be, I don't know, maybe kinder sometimes. Or maybe like we sometimes let our – we run away with glee and become disingenuous at how – how dangerous these people are. Right. Yeah. And and kind of play into their own fame as well. Well, right? for sure. Yeah. And, you know, in fact, that's what Brett Easton Ellis said he was talking about in his stupid book, which I'm not going to read. <laughs> no. But I, I think it's something to consider. And after some time passes, after everybody has their initial reactions to these things, we really get a chance to view them with fresh eyes. And sometimes these things have a different sort of meaning or importance that we should have looked for maybe in the first place. And American Psycho might be one of those things because when it came out, it was hugely controversial. Yeah. It was dropped by its publisher. Then yeah. way later – It was picketed. It was – yeah. Demonstrated against? For sure. But in the 2000s, they made this movie in the year 2000. And mm. I'm going to argue that it's an important piece of film, of cinema. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm not the first one to say that. So I'm not, you know, trying to put myself <laughs> out there as, you know, but. Forget Ebert. <laughs> Rob said it first. But it's, it's good. And it probably has something to say about what we're going through right now. Yeah, well, and also like reading the people uh, about the people who made it, it's it's uh, two female writers and one female director. Like it, it feels like it's almost like a, a female perspective on the out of control masculinity that was the '90s. 
For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Which is also cool to look at it through that lens. Yeah. So I thought it'd be interesting. So now we're going to talk about it. Blaine, when was the first time that you saw American Psycho? I had never seen it all the way through. Yeah, wow. I know. I, you know, I was a teen in the year 2000. You think uh, you were too busy murdering people <laughs> online in video games, you know? Okay, yes. Yeah. I, I think that I would have been rife for the audience like watching this because I was a, a teen boy, but, and, and all my other friends had seen it and were like, Oh, it's crazy. This crazy scene happens and he kills someone with a chainsaw and yeah. he's getting away with it. It's insane. So I definitely heard about it and knew a lot about it and had seen, Probably all of it just in cutscenes, like right. online or when researching things for other pot, like other movies we've done in the podcast. I'd seen a lot of clips from from this. There's a famous like business card scene, right? Which the is, business card scene, yeah, which is which is great, and the chainsaw Wait, thing. And the, do you want to see my new business card? I didn't know that we had uh, business cards from Check the. Check out that. I don't. I don't want to sus- like crash the suspension of disbelief <laughs> on the podcast, but this is a Popeyes receipt. <laughs> You know where to find me. <laughs> this is not a business card. I, right, I feel like this back. is why we haven't we, we haven't been getting guests on the program. What do lately. you mean? We're supposed to have Brett Easton Ellis on here. <laughs> Did you give him your business card? Yes. Because he might have just gotten chicken. Maybe that's what his book is about. Just about white meat. <laughs> about white meat. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be nice. Maybe it's about Breaking Bad. But the title oh, of the character, yeah. That's yeah. a stretch. Yeah, I'm at this Okay, so you've never seen this movie I'd before. I'd never seen the movie all the way through, but it was a, it was even big in my life amongst my friends talking about thing, uh, especially when compared to uh, Fight Club, which is right. the other like really bro-y, masculine yes. movie about murder. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of always... might all take place in the protagonist's head. Right? Yeah, it's like a very similar movie. And uh, probably why this movie kind of got made. I don't know. Maybe it like it's possible. bushwhacked for this movie. So anyway, I didn't see it all the way through. What about you, Rob? Did you see this movie when it first came out? I didn't see it when it first came out. I saw it around the time that Christian Bale took up the Batman mantle. Mm. And so Christian Bale was quickly becoming like the fucking actor, like the fucking dude actor. <laughs> right. He's willing to go to extremes for his roles. He'll make his voice sound weird. Yeah, he'll he'll show you all the vertebrae on his spine and the yeah. machinist. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, when I was more interested in acting, I thought that was interesting. And he was – a. I'm, I think he's a great actor. I love all of his performances. He's done – He's really good in this movie. Great it's, stuff over the years. It's kind of scary because you realize that he could – very much act like that in a hotel room with his family. So you're like, oh no! Like taking a peek into his into the behind the scenes of him uh, is is kind of what I saw in this movie a little bit. Yeah, it's a yeah. chilling performance. So I saw it at that point, and I also thought it was really interesting. I have never read the book American Psycho or any of Brett Easton Ellis's books, but I do find him an interesting character. Mm-hmm. Like I sometimes find authors far more interesting than their output. Right. Like Truman Capote. I didn't know – I hadn't read a Truman Capote book for a long time, but I knew all the details about his life and, right. you know, because he himself – Yeah, he wrote himself into those books too a lot of the time. For sure. So, yeah, yeah. there's there's certain similarities. Uh, 
I did read the first chapter of American Psycho before. Uh, oh. Yeah, and it's sort of interesting how much of the dialogue from the movie is directly taken from the book, even yeah. though circumstances are sort of shuffled around a bit. It's it's come to the point where anytime I see a movie that has like an inner monologue in it, I'm like, this was this a book? And it always was. For sure. Yeah. 100%. percent It's mm. considered hacky to have a narrator. Right. But in some circumstances for certain adaptations, it's the easiest way to thread together all of these examples. Yeah, exactly. But I like the movie. I was also interested in it because, yeah, it was written by this contentious figure but also directed by Mary Heron Mm -hmm. and was written by Guinevere Turner. So Mm -hmm. these are women who are – you know have a strong feminist output. Yeah. Like Mary Heron directed I Shot Andy Warhol, yeah. which is the memoir of Valerie Salernis. And, who, uh, and Betty Page, that biopic too. That's right, which yeah. she also did with uh, Guinevere Turner who mm-hmm. wrote this. So all those factors you know, give it a sort of interesting tension. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And a lot to like examine and play with in terms of the whole you know, structure of, of uh, sex on top of this movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so academically, it's a super interesting movie. So I enjoyed it. It's not like one of my favorite movies. I don't, I haven't rewatched it since I saw it the first time. But I thought it was interesting, and it's a good time to talk about it. Yeah, so for sure. Here we are. Well, do you want to run down the plot? If there's other people out there that aren't are like me that haven't seen it, yeah. So okay. it's basically about this guy. His name is Patrick Batman. <laughs> okay, that's not. I don't think that's his name. So you're missing though. an E. <laughs> it's close though. Okay. Apparently, in the book, somebody actually does refer to him as Batman. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm Batman. Yeah, that's great. A little meta something there. But he is this vain, narcissistic, Wall Street business guy. He, As opposed to like the good-natured, giving Wall Street business guys. Well, we do have (laughs) – That we all see on TV all the time. We have a stereotype of those people, but it's possible that maybe they're not all soulless monsters like the media portrays them. Actually, you know what? The Pursuit of Happiness was kind of a a really good portrayal of someone in that business that was like just trying to be there for his kid. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I didn't even realize that while we were watching it, but that totally undoes all the 90s TV stuff of Wall Street guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean all the screwing poor people probably redoes all the bad stuff. No, for sure. 2008 was really (laughs) – There's all that, mm-hmm. you know. But he, he's living the life. It involves a very rigorous skincare regimen. Yeah. It's like he's training to become Batman with his face. He's doing all <laughs> these things to his face. It's like exfoliating and there's a mask that he peels off, which is very metaphorical. And there's all these like creams and stuff that he uses all the time. Well, part of the reason why his it made so much sense for him to be Batman in a way is because the character – is very Patrick Bateman-esque. Yeah, it's you know? kind of the other side of Patrick Bateman. Like if he uses powers, his obsessive powers for good. Yeah, and you can argue that Batman is a psychopath too. Definitely. Though he doesn't kill people. Wow. Zack Snyder. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he's a bit creepy as a, as a character. Yeah, he's very intense and he also – he has this crew of intense Wall Street buddies that he hangs out with, and they do things like whip their dicks out on the table and compare their sizes. Sorry, I mean they show each other their business cards. Right. I thought you saw a cutscene there. <laughs> <laughs> 
Very true. Very true. And he's very, very upset that anyone might have a bigger business card than he does. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Is that a gram? New card. What do you think? Oh, very nice. Look at that. Picked them up from the printers yesterday. Good coloring. That's bone. And the lettering is something called Cillian Braille. It's very cool, Bateman, but that's nothing. Look at this. That is really nice. Eggshell with Romalian type. What do you think? Nice. Jesus. <laughs> that is really super. How a nitwit like you get so tasteful? There's a lot of criticizing masculinity or like yeah. the sort of markers and signifiers of masculinity. Yeah. Did you ever, when you were younger, like, I don't know, I hate to use the term like alpha and beta because I think that's really awful. But Because like, you're a beta. <laughs> shut up, alpha. <laughs> um, no, but the, have you ever been with like a bunch of guys like that that are like all vying for top dog all the time? Like it's exhausting. Yeah, I mean, some people are like that. Yeah. But people are like that in their day-to-day life in different places in more subtle ways. Like, in any environment, people try to vie for a power position, right. just One like I'm themselves. bowing for a power position by one-umping you. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can have it. You can have it. I mean, you are leading the podcast. You, yeah. You can continue. It's only polite, and plus, you can't do it. <laughs> Throwing down the gauntlet. But he even seems to be like a progressive sort of guy. Like he 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 knows all the cause celebres. Oh, nice! You can speak French. That's he good. can talk about all the things that need to be fixed in the world, and you know some of them. Like yeah, like make that he maybe says global warming. I don't know. He says a bunch of things that make sense. Yeah, he does actually. Yeah, but behind all that, we start to see that this American. Is a little bit psycho. Yes. Well, he loves murder. He loves blood. <laughs> yeah. He loves these things. He watches porn without masturbating, which I found particularly distasteful. Oh, I – yeah. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> and then Blaine is back in the power position. All right. <laughs> this is good. <laughs> a lot of it is in his head at first. Yeah. We hear it because we hear his inner monologue. Sure, but there's also that is still uh, you know, up for up for grabs in terms of whether it's in his head or not when it starts coming out at the bar, uh, mm-hmm. perhaps when he's saying uh to the bartender that he's gonna like play around in her blood when she turns her back on him, like, is the bar too loud or does she hear him and ignore him, or is it all him saying this in his head? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very it's a very weird line that exists throughout the entire movie that you never really know if if any of this happened or not. That's right. Well, yeah, cuz later he starts to even at first he just, you know, says mean things to people, but then he starts even confessing his crimes out loud, but people just seem to mishear him yeah. or choose to mishear him. And you can't really tell whether they're just oblivious cuz they're in their own little worlds or mm-hmm. Whether this is all in his imagination. Yeah. And if it's not, that's like the most chilling part of the movie that someone could confess to all these crimes on a grand scale and nothing would happen to them. Mm-hmm. Trump, anyway. <laughs> Go on. Who? Uh, no, no, nothing. No. Is that Donald Trump's car? <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's a whole bunch of Trump stuff in this movie, too. Like, the, is that Ivanka Trump? No, no, it's not. Yeah. All that stuff. No, I think it was Ivana Trump that mm. they said, her mom. Right, yes. Yeah. 
There's even more of that stuff in the book, apparently. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But eventually, well, it fits. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> eventually, this American psycho, he just starts plum killing people. He stabs a homeless man. Yeah. And then he... He offers to help at first. Yeah. Yeah, which is particularly evil, I'd say. I mean, I can totally picture that character, the Wall Street stereotype guy. I'm helping a homeless person slash fucking with them. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that is almost, I guess, part of the perception that we have of those people in the public. Yeah. Until, like, the actual murder. Right. Yeah, and I I think it fits so well with his character because he's like, I have all this power and I can have power over you and that's great. So I'm going to be like, you'll be my dog. I'll help you. But then he smells him and he's so revolted by him because Patrick Bateman is so clean and this man is – so it like that turn is like – tells you everything you need to know about his character right away. It's For great. sure. For yeah. sure. Uh, and then his next victim comes along and he, he gets it basically because he mistakes Patrick Bateman for somebody else, for Marcus Halberstrom. <laughs> yeah, the names are great. Because all of these guys sort of look alike and they're struggling to conform in a way. Like they all wear the same turtle shell glasses. They all yeah. wear the same designer suits. They these go to the, the same barber. Yeah, and yeah. these are the things that they talk about because they're what help them, like, sort of maintain their position of power. Like, conformity allows you to rise up yeah. in these sort of situations. And, but And it feels like there's a platonic ideal of what uh, that type of man should be that they're all striving towards, too. Mm-hmm. And that one, like, occupies for a second at a time in their conversation. Yeah. But the movie plays with their extreme interchangeability. <laughs> yeah. Like, the same way that they are pretending to recognize people at restaurants and then know that's not them. Mm-hmm. This guy doesn't recognize that Patrick Bateman is Patrick Bateman and, in fact, you know, talks shit about Patrick Bateman to Patrick Bateman. Right. And, of course, this is Paul Allen, who is played by everybody's favorite American psycho, Jared Leto. <laughs> oh, God. The unimpeachable Jared Leto. Yeah, who I think it was at one point up for the role of Patrick Bateman, but he might have had to settle for this. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's a far fall because he's not in this movie very long. I don't think he was seriously considered, but it was like one of the names that was uh, floated. Well, if they only knew what he'd do with Joker, they would have been like, you're still this character in this movie. (laughs) Yeah. We're not going to give you the role. But Bateman basically because this guy, you know, alphas him, Mm -hmm. has the better business card insults him by either pretending not to know who he is or genuinely not knowing who he is. Well, and he has an account that Patrick Bateman wants too, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He invites him for dinner and this scene. Yeah. Well, yeah. He gives him the noose. He gives him (laughs) Huey Lewis and the noose. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) He gives him the noose right to the back of the skull. In 87, Huey released this. Their most accomplished album. I think their undisputed masterpiece is Hip to Be Square. A song so catchy, most people probably don't listen to the lyrics. But they should, because it's not just about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of trends. It's also a personal statement about the band itself. Hey, Paul! Ah! Right there, you reservation at Dorkin now, you fucking stupid bastard! Yeah, I mean, this is like the quintessential scene of the whole movie. This is what people talk about when they talk about this movie, besides the business card scene. Right. Like getting into a raincoat. And he he takes on this like 
jolly, almost like a character from a uh, a musical. Yeah, it's he's, very strange. He moonwalks out the door with the axe. <laughs> yeah, he's dancing around and and giving that kind of like 1950s like, gee, Willikers, Bob, that's great news and stuff yeah. like that. Like he's putting on this weird persona to do this manic killing. Mm-hmm. It's scary as hell. <laughs> My God. Yeah, and it's probably the only album review that directly ended in a murder. There were some Chris Gow ones, but oh my god! And yeah, just uh, just kind of the noticing of all the. He's like, "Do you have a dog? Why is all this newspaper on the floor?" And like, he's drunkenly slowly putting it together. Yeah, that's oh, a great scene, and it plays so well. Knowing that it's Jared Leto. Because at this point, Jared Leto wasn't Jared Leto yet. But now he's Jared Leto. Right. He's the guy that we all want to see murdered. Kind of. Oh, and no. does that make me a psycho? As long as you do it in your head, potentially? But, you know, this is the same thing that I was saying about Brett Easton Ellis, who I also don't give a shit about. Right. We shouldn't take so much joy in in Jared Leto being a turd (laughs) or like hating Jared Leto for being a turd. Yeah. yeah. It's not healthy, man. I know. I I feel like the the cult of public opinion is really – I mean they call it cult for a reason and I find myself in it a lot. And then I realize, oh, you know, what if I was in that position or what if I did something stupid because I thought it was funny and then the whole world was watching and they hate me for no reason. Like I don't know. Jared Leto's kind of a tool. He's he kind of a tool. Doesn't, but like I'm kind of a tool sometimes. You're you know? totally a tool. Thank you very much. Just backing me up. That's nice. It's nice to be alpha again. You're like a socket wrench. <laughs> so yeah, I, I feel bad about the people that kind of the public turns on them so fast. Yeah, but yeah. then he starts killing people who we are actually empathetic for. Yeah, for sure. Well, and well, there's lots of weird stuff that actually happens before that because there's the I'm, I'm talking specifically about Christy is the name he gives this prostitute that he picks up and then does some like awful things. And this is the stuff that is like definitely harder to watch. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of the way that the movie is directed. The scene with Jared Leto, there's definitely a lot of comedy there. Yeah. Yeah. But it's hard to find the comedy in this in the scene with the two prostitutes. It's bad. The first scene is the one where he has them and he's making a video and he's, you know, telling them to look at the camera and then he's like kissing his muscles. And then yeah. it's that just that part was so over the top that sometimes like his own self aggrandizement was kind of funny. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe we're, I mean, maybe we're approaching this movie wrong, thinking that there's comedy in it to begin with. I mean, it totally has comedy in it All right. because the chainsaw. Yeah, that's supposed to be funny. That's over the top and crazy, and would never happen in real life. So yeah, I, I get that it's kind of this uh, trying to take a Disney take on murder a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I guess, I guess there's some some comedy there. But it is it is hard to hear, especially when he meets with the prostitute again. She's like, I had to go to the hospital after last time. Like, what what happened to me? What you did to me? Yeah. It's like, oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. This guy is evil. He's evil. Yeah. There's more murders. <laughs> Hold up. What? In American Psycho, there are more murders? Yeah. Tell me more. Well— he almost murders his secretary who – I'm so glad he didn't murder her. Yeah, Chloe Savini. Yeah. She's great. I feel like she – I was surprised that she didn't, you know, 
get that nail gun and murder him because she's a badass B word. <laughs> um, yeah, no, she's she's pretty badass. Did you sure. see her conniving in Big Love as the conniving sister wife? Oh, no. she's wicked. Okay, no, <laughs> I didn't see that. I didn't see that. But I felt so afraid for her. In these scenes, I thought they were written so well with her on the one hand trying to impress him and on the other hand kind of being let down by herself for wanting to. I -hmm. thought it was such a good acting, directing and writing job, all all three of those women working together. I thought it was so so great because I could see every time he he was like, you'd look good in a dress. She like kind of bumps up and is like, yeah, that's great to hear. Also, that's horrible to hear. And why do I like this guy? Fuck. Like I kind of felt all of that through her acting. It was great. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and when he gets the message from his fiance, who I well, you haven't even talked about, Reese Witherspoon. That's right. In this movie, just kicking ass too. In her role, she's like, oh, "Why do I always get involved with attached men?" And so she she kind of leaves. And and I love the dialogue of her being like, "Yeah, you won't be able to handle yourself handle yourself around me." And he's like, "I won't. I'll have to kill you. Like I'll have to murder you." It's like this. They're talking about two totally different things with the same language. It's it's a beautiful scene. Do you want me to go? I don't think I can control myself. I know I should go. I know I have a tendency to get involved with unavailable men. And, I mean, do you want me to go? I think if you stay, something bad will happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the nail gun stuff, like, that is some harrowing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love his excuse for having tape, too. She's like, why do you have so much duct tape? He's like, ah, to tape things. Like, there's no excuse. That makes sense, actually. (laughs) I've used duct tape to tape things. Right. I mean, once. (laughs) Once or twice. Yeah. uh, But that's the part of his character that's so crazy in this movie is that he doesn't have to explain himself ever because he's the top dog at, like, a firm. And so he just hires people well, to, it's like, to be his friends and to be his lovers. Who's that man who said that they could go out into Central Park and shoot somebody? And Yeah, I can't. I don't remember his name. Anyway. Yeah. They – eventually though, he's having a breakdown. Mm-hmm. He's having a real crisis. He yeah. – I mean – Finally, it's caught up to him. First, he's murdering all these people. Yeah. Which is – I mean that's going to that's gonna cause a dent yeah, in and your then psyche. He, then he can't murder somebody. That's weird. Which is pretty frustrating. Yeah. We've all been there. When you can't. I don't know. <laughs> don't look at me like no. that, Rob. <laughs> and he starts to like he starts to like lose his grip on reality and he like shoots a bunch of people. Like Yeah. After the, after the ATM tells him to feed it a cat. Yeah. Just just a, such a greedy ATM. You have so much money to begin with. Those service fees are getting gross. <laughs> $3 in my firstborn? What? <laughs> well, I need money for the cab. Yeah, but he goes on a rampage and eventually the police are after him. And I, I forgot to even mention that Willem Dafoe was questioning him. Yeah, just playing Willem Dafoe. Yeah. Who else does Willem Dafoe play? You know? So he's also paranoid that that the police are catching up with him. There's a great scene where where Willem Dafoe mentions Huey Lewis and the News, which is the music that he was playing when he killed Paul Allen. Yeah. And then Bateman says that he doesn't like them because they're too black for him. 
Really? Yeah. I didn't hear that. I thought he said too like artistic. Oh, that was in the apartment. Their first album. Uh, he sounds. Huey sounds too black. Oh Jesus! Yeah, which I thought was really interesting as an example of how okay, some men use racism as a shield to deflect against things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're murderers. Right. Who is? I keep on forgetting that guy's name. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, I didn't. I didn't hear that. Wow. Yeah, I hate Patrick Bateman. He loses it and he calls his lawyer and basically confesses to all of his crimes. And it's like a whole list of them. A lot of them yeah. we didn't even see. Yeah, but the acting job there is amazing. Him like reeling his insanity in before he slips away forever is is. Fine acting work. Yeah. It's really great. Yeah. And the camera just like really up in his face as the searchlights light the room up here and there. Uh, Yeah, that was a great scene. But then later, he's back hanging out with his buddies (laughs) and he sees his lawyer and he talks to him and he's like, listen, about that voicemail. And he's like, oh, yes, that was a funny joke. (laughs) Said no one ever. Is he a lawyer (laughs) for like – Homicidal comedians? Like, what? Well, probably. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I kind of believe it. Like, this is Wall Street at its most depraved. The biggest hubris that you could have in the early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they have made other movies about this phenomena, like Wall Street. (laughs) Sure. The Wolf of Wall Street. Sure. They all have uh, really different names, though. That's what really (laughs) threw me off. You have to tell where it takes place. Yeah, what's their subject? <laughs> but the lawyer thinks he's another guy. He, he yeah. thinks he's somebody else. He and doesn't... then slags off Patrick Bateman again to his face. Yeah. That wineless simp or whatever he says. Yeah. Spineless wimp. <laughs> <I'm> sure. <laughs> <laughs> Did anything happen? Yeah, because he doesn't, he doesn't know. He just sits back down and uh, needs a reservation for a restaurant. Mm-hmm. God. Yeah. Was it on his head? Was it Fight Club? <laughs> Did we meet him at a very strange point in his life? That's it's up, hard to say. It's up to us to decide. We'll talk about all of that and more. We've got the behind the scenes, got the oh, trivia. Oh, nice. After the break. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. We're back. It's Rewatchability. We're talking about American Psycho. It's a movie from the 2000s, Blaine. You know I got some trivia for you. Hit me with the trivia. And I'm not going to go easy on you because I am psycho. (laughs) I wish I had a rejoinder. (laughs) (laughs) So the first question, this is a toughie. Which cast member's stepmother actually crusaded against the book American Psycho and even talked to another actor about not taking a role in the movie. Oh, okay. So, okay, stepmother, talked to another actor. 
So she had to be like close. They weren't like uh, you know too far away from each other, right? Like they had to be like talking still. If she was talking to another cast member. Yeah, I, I, people can have good relationships with their step parents, Blaine. I don't know about you. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just trying to figure it out because uh, I'm come gonna, on, Ken Jennings. I'm, I'm going to say I'm, I'm going to say the main character. I'm going to say uh, Christian Bale. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And who is the stepmother? Who is the stepmother? I don't know. I know he was a child actor, and so she's probably like. Really big into her, into her. I don't know. I don't know who the stepmother is. <laughs> uh, know. Bad guess. <laughs> bad guess. Damn it! Your prize for losing is the axe. No. <laughs> no. Who was it? So you are correct. It is Christian Bale. That was a good guess. Then it was a good guess. Why did he I get an axe in the, the back of the head? <laughs> Jesus. His stepmother is Gloria Steinem. Famously, she sort of crusaded against the book when it came out and actually talked to Leonardo DiCaprio when he was being considered for the role and convinced him not to take it. Wow. This was before she married Christian Bale's dad, David Bale, and thus became his stepmom. Wow. That's an awkward wedding. There was a rumor that Christian Bale only took this role to annoy his stepmom, Gloria Steinem. <laughs> you know, feminist pioneer a, Gloria Steinem. In a real power play for the household. <laughs> <laughs> but he says that that's not true. Yeah, I'm sure that's, this sounds very petty and weird. Yeah, and like we said, this movie has like its own feminist credentials. Yep. Mary Heron, great mm-hmm. feminist film director. Yeah. So question the second. So interesting, Gloria Steinem was a stepmother. I didn't even know that. Yeah, That's cool. it's interesting. That's weird. One actor that Christian Bale based his performance off is actually referenced in American Psycho as a real neighbor of Patrick Bateman. Which actor is it? <laughs> Mr. Rogers. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Welcome <laughs> to the neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, if you you've seen next. that documentary about Fred Rogers, you know that he was a killer. <laughs> <laughs> he killed all those people. Uh, they didn't discover it until very recently. And I, they didn't let it out in the news because they didn't want to spoil the documentary. <laughs> didn't, didn't you feel jaded, though, watching that movie and just expecting the shoe to drop? Like, I was just expecting them to come out and be like, and on the weekends, he donned the hood of the Klan. And you're like, what? <laughs> like, I just expected something like that. Because doing a documentary on just like a nice guy doesn't happen. So anyway, I was, I was expecting it. Yeah. So it was Mr. Rogers. What actor? Let me give uh, Brad, Brad Pitt. Incorrect. Okay, what actor was so it? Brad Pitt was at one point signed up to be the star of this movie. Oh, wow. Yeah, we'll talk about that in I'm a second. I'm so glad Leo and Brad did not do this movie. Oh, man, yeah. I'm, it's Christian Bale's movie all the way. For, for sure. For they would have They would have handed up. Yeah. It was, in fact, Mr. Tom Cruise. Oh, Tom fucking Cruise. Yeah, Christian Bale said that he saw an Fuck interview you. on Letterman with Tom Cruise, and Mary Heron says that he emulated his Intense friendliness with nothing behind the eyes. Oh, no. Yeah, well, he didn't emulate the Tom Cruise running in this movie. You know, naked with an axe down the hallway. I wanted to see more direct movements. Yeah, he was a little all over the place. I don't get the Tom Cruise running joke. What's that? What's the deal with that? Uh, It's just he does it in every one of his movies. He runs? Yeah, he... 
Oh, he runs. We, <laughs> wait, we, that was like the tagline of one of his movies. Which movie? Everybody Eyes runs. Eyes wide shut. <laughs> <laughs> he runs. He hits things. Eyes wide shut. <laughs> He always goes to the hospital. He keeps on running to lampposts. No, no, it was uh, it was Minority Report. Oh yeah, Everybody that's runs, right. Especially Tom Cruise. That's true. We uh, talked about that movie. Yeah, we, we did. We did. But yeah, so he's running. Christian Bale runs his movie naked with an axe, covered in blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the the naked with the axe, only wearing the sneakers, is such like a iconic image. Yeah, and yet when I do it as a Halloween <laughs> costume, everyone says go home. It wasn't Halloween. It was the middle of May. <laughs> Any day can be Halloween. Okay, <laughs> that's you keep what I'm it saying. in your hearts. <laughs> that wasn't a psychotic break, Rob. That was Halloween. Okay. <laughs> he also based his performance off of Nicolas Cage in oh, Vampire's Kiss. Yeah, of course, totally. I see that now for sure. And Mary Heron wanted him to perform Patrick Bateman as sort of like a Martian, like he he'd never been to this world. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like looking at humans, like, what are they doing? Why don't they just do this and get away with it? It's so easy. For sure. Yeah. Question the third. Okay. This, so I got, I'm got i one for two right now. This one will slay you. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Well, maybe maybe I don't want to hear it Like then. in the RuPaul Drag Race way. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to admit that I've never seen RuPaul's I've never Drag seen Race. it either, okay. but I know that's where it comes from. All right. Fair enough. This movie – has a lot of death in it. Yep. But there's also a glimmer of life. <laughs> Does someone get pregnant? <laughs> yes. In fact, two cast or crew members were pregnant during the filming of this movie. Who were they? Oh, uh, to cast or crew? Yeah. Yeah, easy to tell when the crew is pregnant on a film. <laughs> you can see the glow from behind the camera. <laughs> yeah, there were so many pregnant people on the Star Trek set, J.J. Abrams. That's why there were all those lens flares. <laughs> I'm going to say, you know what? Now that you mention it, I never, like Reese Witherspoon was always in jackets and always sitting down. Oh. And I know she has kids, so I'm going to say Reese Witherspoon. And then I'm going to say the director. Two. Those are my two guesses. That is correct. Am I right? You got it. I. That's amazing. Yeah. That's okay. I How, feel really good about that because I honestly had no idea. Yeah, that was a good guess. I feel good. I feel good. <laughs> that's awesome. Way to remember directors can get pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, they. Uh, I, I don't have any cute – Dates or names of their children, you know, they to share the joy. That, that's yeah, that's really nice, though. Yeah, I knew that. The, yeah, the, I knew the director had two kids. I looked her up a little bit to see what else she had done, and she'd done a, a bunch. She's also Canadian. Uh, that's right. She is a, from Bracebridge, Ontario. We need to plug the Canadians out there. Home of Santa's Village. Oh, <laughs> I didn't know that Santa lived there. No, it's not where Santa lives. It's just a cheap theme park where a guy dressed up as Santa. It's Santa's Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> it's the winter North Pole. I like it. I like it. Yeah, uh, so she she had two kids, but she was also the kid of, of uh, a pretty famous actor from uh, Hee Haw, that show, back in the day. Oh, I didn't know that. And he played a, a pretty comedic character on there and then wrote like books in that character's voice. 
for a long while. Like, I think his name was like Farka Wad or something like that. Oh, God. There are people like a generation older than us, if they listen to this, going – Which they do. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you don't know about hee-haw. Your generation. <laughs> Get off my ear pods. Generation wuss. <laughs> That's one of the things that Brett Easton Ellis calls millennials, generation wuss. He really hates millennials. Uh, OK. Yeah. And uh, anyway, he's a gross guy. But I actually have a fourth question for you. It's a bonus question. Out of nowhere. Okay. That's right. Like a baby bonus. (laughs) Okay. Great. Screenwriter Guinevere Turner also appears in the film. Which character does she play? I did learn this. And she plays the redhead who talks about going to Sarah Lawrence. And that's where she actually went. Yeah, that's right. She's the one who Patrick Bateman tries to convince her to – have sex with her, make out with Christy. And she says, I'm not a lesbian. And then he goes, you went to Sarah Lawrence. But it's funny because she is a lesbian and she (laughs) went to Sarah Lawrence. Yeah, yeah. And she's also, as a filmmaker, she's really interesting. I meant to talk about her on the Chasing Amy episode because she did the movie that influenced Chasing Amy called Go Fish. And she appears in Chasing Amy as the singer of that band. Because mm-hmm. in Go Fish, she had it's like a similar trajectory to chasing the main character from Chasing Amy. Too, yeah, right? it's like the scene. I think it mostly focuses on the scene where they're talking about whether or not you can still be a lesbian if you have sex with men or something. Yeah, and then I think her. I also read that her name was used for for Joey Lawrence's character in Mallrats. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And she also appears in Dogma. She has a small role, which was also released by Lionsgate around the same time. Wow. Yeah. So she's in the um, in the what do you call it? The non Whedonverse? The Skewaverse? No. So, that's what they. That's what. But you have call. to think of a man to string through this universe. <laughs> <laughs> she has her own career. She's also done stuff like The L Word. I, I guess it could have been The Turner. All sorts of yeah. stuff like that. She's, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. She's had a great career. Yeah. yeah, yeah Outside cool. the mainstream. <laughs> the mainstream. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. All right. Well, a little bit of the behind the scenes stuff. This was based on the book, as we mentioned, by Brett Easton Ellis. And, I mean, he was such a young writer. He had written his first book when he was in his early 20s, Less Than Zero, and he had become a sort of big deal in the literary scene. And his second book was sort of more of a flop, but American Psycho really made him super famous, broke him out of just the world of literature because it was super controversial. Yeah. The New York Times review actually said, snuff this book, will Brett Easton Ellis get away with murder? Wow. Wow. uh, I've heard of some bad reviews, but that's bad. That's bad. And – a few chapters were published early in magazines like they are and the reaction was so – Vitriolic? Yeah, vitriolic that the first publisher, Simon & Schuster, actually dropped the book. They decided that they didn't want to publish it. They didn't ask Brett Easton Ellis for his money back or anything like that. They were just wow. like, there's no value to this book, so we're not even going to publish it. Wow. Yeah. Well, do you can, – can I ask you – because you've seen this before. This is kind of my first time going through it. But having seen it before and seen it now, do you see value to this 
movie to talking about the this movie? Oh, absolutely. I mean, now the book has been thoroughly sort of gone through with a critical lens and it's seen as a satire of this particular society and era and these right. Wall Street guys. And obviously, like, Brett Easton Ellis wasn't writing from the point of view of Patrick Bateman because that was himself. I mean, though there are certain elements which are autobiographical. And Brett Easton Ellis is a different sort of asshole than <laughs> Patrick Bateman. I mean right. – Different cloth. Yeah. Same suit. Well, I mean, so there, are, there are important distinctions like, you know, he is a queer man mm-hmm. whereas Patrick Bateman is homophobic – at one point in the movie, his friend Luis thinks that he is hitting on him when he's about to murder him. Yeah. And Bateman basically freaks the fuck out and says, I have to return some videos. <laughs> yeah. He wouldn't have that excuse now. Well, yeah. I have to go cancel Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> because there's a library and I can rent videos from the library. <laughs> 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 but eventually I think it was seen as something that had value and was sort of like linked into like a larger tradition of writers like it's sort right. of like William Burroughs and uh, Hubert Selby and those sort of things. They don't have pleasant people and characters who are doing good things but they do show us a portrait of society which we can learn something from. Yeah, well, and I think that's so interesting about this movie, watching it, to have the bad guy, the, the you know, protagonist, evil per, evil doer. Like in Falling Down, the protagonist becomes an, uh, a bad guy and it's yeah. like, oh, I'm the bad guy in this movie. But then he gets his comeuppance. And I think moralistically we all want the bad people to have their comeuppance and the good people to get their, their goals or, or what they need at the very least. And it's interesting to have a movie where the bad guy gets away with it and might have gotten away with a whole bunch of murders and just no one wants to believe that he's capable of it or will do it. So they ignore him. That is interesting in the fact that we can still learn from it. It doesn't have to be immoral for us to learn from it. Mm. You know, like we can still look at that and be like, well, maybe we should look at our society a bit harder if someone can realistically be depicted as getting away with murder time and time again in a society. Mm-hmm. So I think – yeah, I think you're right. I think there is value to it and value that comes from the fact that this person is evil but we're made to see the world through his eyes. Right. Yeah. But I mean the book is – and the movie is very vague. Like we don't know actually what he's done or what deeds he's committed or whether he's a murderer or whether he's fantasizing about th- these things Yeah. Well, and where they come from. Like – Part of this movie is the sort of dissolving of Patrick Bateman's mental health. Right. So we don't know if he's just imagining these things in like a schizophrenic episode almost. For sure. And later when Chloe Savini goes into his office and is looking at his notebook and we see all of these scenes of violence, like it's possible that – the scenes that were shown in realistic, full-color Huey Lewis and the of News. his agenda? Yeah. Yeah. It's just – and Ellis has sort of talked about how 
when he started writing the book, it wasn't about a serial killer. Mm. There was no murders in it. It was just about these Wall Street douchebags, the way that they talked about getting reservations, the way that they talked about their skincare right. regiment, their all of that. It was more about the vanity and the narcissism and the serial killer aspect is sort of like a fantastical thing that was put on not after – but it's sort of like a lens to view those other things almost. Well, it seems like also the natural evolution of those traits. For sure. Right? When you have such vanity and such disgust for other people. And the misogyny and yeah, the homophobia and exactly. the bigotry. And- exactly. Like that will lead to becoming a psychopath mm-hmm. like if you follow that route as long as you can. Yeah. Yeah, so I I see that uh, the the writers. If you want to believe that the that it's all part of Patrick Bateman's imagination, then don't read on to what the writers have to say about the movie. But the director and writer said that they thought that this was this actually did happen, and they wanted to put a, a kind of a vague notion that it might not have happened, that it might have been in all his, in, in his head, but that it definitely did happen, and he's gotten away with it. And that's like what they thought was the scariest part of the movie. And I agree with them. But the director said she probably failed to do that. And that was her regret with this movie Mm. was that she kind of failed to realize to walk that fine line. And instead, most people flipped over to the this was all a fantasy side. Yeah. Well, I I, it's that whole death of the author thing. Your intentions can be one thing, but the way that it's read is the way that it's read. And it's not. An uncontroversial movie either. I mean the movie has sort of become bigger than the book in a big way. Like it's become – Patrick Bateman has become memefied, not mummified. Though I'm sure Christian Bale would do it if a role called for it. Yeah. Well, he could take over Tom Cruise and be (laughs) in The Mummy. Yeah. Great. But there's also like people question whenever you make a satire or something that glamorizes – yeah, these sorts of things in order to criticize them, there is always the question of whether or not people emulate it, not getting that is a satire and actually cause harm and damage and yeah. all of that stuff. You know, on on that debate, I am not on the side of satire. I think that satire is useful when power is absolute and you have to speak truth to power. And so you can use comedy where it's kind of like, Oh, I didn't mean to say that. I didn't mean it to come across that way, King. Don't behead me. Uh, but in this society, I think it could, it could spread the wrong message. I was always more of a fan of, of Stuart than Colbert for that reason. Mm. So you're saying that we should round up all the satirists, put them in a jail, and then execute them. <laughs> That's you, t- you took the words from my mouth. <laughs> um, yeah. I do think that the one thing that leads everyone to believe beyond the lawyer at the end saying uh, you're like Patrick Bateman's a wimp and you're not Patrick Bateman. The call was a funny answering machine message that you left is the fact that he goes to the guy's apartment where he murdered all those people and it's been painted over with white yeah. paint. And that seems a little too far. It, if that was real, then who covered it up? It just begs so many more questions if it was real. Yeah. If the writers and, and the director wanted it to be real, then um, – Because the woman is – the woman who's showing the place once she finds – once Patrick Bateman starts asking her 
questions, she figures out something and she's like, go, go yeah. and never come back. And we're sort of meant to believe that they cleaned up all the bodies to sell the apartment. To sell the apartment. They just, you know, yeah. cleaned it all up, didn't call the police, didn't make any sort of fuss. One person online was saying that it was Patrick Bateman's family who was very rich and they couldn't have a son who committed a lot of murders. So they would clean up after him oh. and all these messes. So he'd go around doing all that. But he never mentions his family once. No. So I, I feel like he's an, he's an orphan. We no, Well, we know that he has family because Patrick Bateman first came up in the book – Rules of Attraction, where uh, he is the brother of the protagonist in that book, Sean Bateman. Oh, interesting. And, Blaine. <laughs> yeah, correct me. If you count American Psycho 2 as canon, <laughs> who, which... Who doesn't, really? I do. He has a sister in Mila Kunis. Oh, she was in that movie? She is the protagonist of American Psycho 2. What? What happens in American Psycho 2? Well, let me tell you. So Patrick Bateman gets killed by somebody he's trying to murder. <laughs> Apt to happen. Yeah, at some eventually. Point. Yeah. And then Mila Kunis is like, hey, maybe I should get into the family biz. <laughs> Man. So then she just goes around killing people? Just goes around killing people. And I'm, I assume it's artfully done, Artful. like this movie? Yeah, it was directed by Morgan Freeman. Sorry, Morgan J. Freeman. <laughs> okay. Sweet. I had a brief flicker of hope when I saw Morgan J. Freeman that maybe it was Morgan Freeman. Like, it is just Morgan Freeman narrating for Mila Kunis. It's her, her internal monologue. This is Morgan Freeman. Yeah. That would have been great. <laughs> I like to kill people. <laughs> I was Patrick Bateman's friend. Yeah. <laughs> there was also a musical of American Psycho. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I feel like that just automatically misses the point of the movie. Great. What, what, how did it do? Did it do well? It did pretty well. In the United Kingdom is where it was started and Matt Smith from Doctor Who played it. Oh, wow. I believe there it was called uh, a British uncouthman. <laughs> okay. It's a little, okay. It's a little, little bit gentler. Little, little stretch for that. <laughs> It, Uncouthman. It did come to America, and I think it had a short off-Broadway right. stint. Okay. Um, it didn't do too well. I thought it would kill. Yeah. No. Not evidently, no. <laughs> wow. So was there like a kid's cartoon of this too? I can imagine <laughs> it would have made like a – Well, they did want to do a TV series, and mm. I think there was even – Brett Easton Ellis, I hate saying his whole name, Ugh. he did write a – I think he wrote a sequel where Patrick Bateman was in his 50s possibly. Oh, God. OK. Because this would be the moment to do it. I, another thing that we didn't talk about before we wrap this all up is in the book, the person that we don't want to talk about – who is the president of the United States, is sort of all over it. Like the movie minimizes it in a way. But in the book, Patrick Bateman idolizes Donald Trump in a huge way. Oh. Do you wonder how different the world would be if they kept that in the movie? If people saw that and were like, yeah, that guy's a fucking – they linked him it with It would psychopath? be the same world. <laughs> Literally nothing would change except there'd be one more instance where we'd be like, yeah, that's where they mentioned the shithead president in the movie. Yeah, exactly. It can't just be Home Alone 2. But 
Ellis says that he thinks that he got most of his Trump rage out through American Psycho, and maybe that's why he's, I guess, not empathetic to all the terrible things that are being done to people by Donald Trump, like having your family separated and being sent back he's to countries. He's not sympathetic for that? <sighs> Jesus. He's a dickbag. <laughs> Uh, that, yeah, there's there's more words coming to my mind, but yeah, that's. Uh, but that's other crazy. people, like one of his friends, who is also an author, who I can't remember his name, says that he feels that by having like all the pressure of censorship and people sending him death threats and unduly criticizing him when American Psycho first came out, it sort of traumatized him in a way where he's right. you know. Yeah, yeah. He already got burned by that fire. He can't really get burned twice. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's how fires work. But, you can uh, get burned twice by a okay, fire, yeah, actually. The, <laughs> they're kids. called second-degree burns. <laughs> that's not and true either. two times worse. I think we're both uninformed on this topic. Uh, yeah. But that's <laughs> that's American Psycho. I, it's an interesting movie. There's a lot to talk about. Yeah, yeah. It is interesting, it's, especially in light of, of the Donald Trump stuff in the book and the – Kind of psycho responses to to contentious topics. Yeah, yeah. Blaine, what did you think? You didn't see this movie all the way through before, no. but what did you think watching it now? Is it rewatchable? Do you think that you would rewatch it at some point? Maybe I, <laughs> when all of this is over. <laughs> I think that I might watch it again. It was really depressing to watch. Mm-hmm. It's not the nicest movie to watch, and I think as I get older i hate to admit it but violence does not great things for me i don't like watching it too much yeah uh even if it's over the top even if it's quentin generation wuss (laughs) i i think that's a good thing for a generation to be squeamish of blood uh but that's just me so i i i think it's so well done and it's beautifully made and crafted movie it, it might make me want to read the the Brett Easton Ellis Ellis movie or book, but uh, maybe not. I don't know. So I, I think I think it's good. I might never watch it again, though. Yeah. So on the fence. I'm on the fence. What about you, Rob? I think it's a good movie. I think it's one of those movies that is sort of special in a way that it exists only because a confluence of factors occurred. Yeah. And made it into something more than it is. Like it's sort of like Fight Club in a way like – yeah, Fight Club the movie is bigger than Fight Club the book. Right. Like it hit a zeitgeist at the same time as kind of satirized it a little bit. Yeah. It also like takes it like one step further, Mm -hmm. you know, like in a way that Chuck Palahniuk couldn't have written Fight Club. Brett Easton Ellis couldn't have written American Psycho the movie. No, and they both had really great directors at the helm that knew what to do with the source material. For sure. And I love the direction in this movie. Like yeah. the shots are uh, breathtaking, some of them. Yeah. No, totally. And the the seeing so many things from Patrick Bateman's perspective to kind of get us in his head beyond the internal monologue, I thought some of it was pretty genius, ingeniously mm-hmm. done. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the fact that – it is like it's a very feminist reading of American Psycho, a book that they didn't even think – it's one of those books that people don't think should have been or could have been made into a movie. The author doesn't think it could have been made into a movie. Mm-hmm. But it, I think it 
for the most part, really works. It's like very harrowing. It deals with the violence in a way that isn't gratuitous. Like the fact that you feel for the two prostitutes that he hurts and then murders. Right. Is human. And uh... it's different than what we see in movies. In a lot of movies, like prostitutes are just like numbers. Like we just like two dead prostitutes. They're they're as good as henchmen in movies. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I think it's a great movie. I think there's a lot worth seeing in it. I think it can be explored very deeply. Yeah, and from a lot of different lenses too. From an entertaining perspective, it's not like super fun, but like there is like a lot of glee that you can take in certain scenes. Sure, yeah, yeah. Like all the all the stuff when he's talking about Genesis while right. getting ready to murder somebody. Yeah, yeah. I mean, showing him psychotic in that way worked so well. Yeah, he was. He like then you realize that all his other conversations in his entire life. Were just him talking like that, but on the inside, planning a murder. Mm. Like, you just realized in that one scene that he was a psychopath. It was great. Did you see the Huey Lewis parody of that scene? No. There's a funnier die parody where Huey Lewis of Huey Lewis and the News. Interesting. Bold he, choice. He does a riff on the Patrick Bateman with the raincoat and the Huey Lewis sports thing, but talking about American Psycho. You know, talk about how it was right. misunderstood by the critics, but then there was a deluxe edition, sure. the director's cut, yeah, yeah. and then he uh, he murders Weird Al for writing "I Want a New Duck." <laughs> that's great. Yeah, anytime Weird Al's in something, that's it's delightful. Yeah, it's so easy to you know, man. Yeah. yeah. So that's rewatchability for this week. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. Of course, you can find us on Apple Podcasts where you can listen to all of our back episodes, I think, except for maybe the first 50. The rest of them are on our website. You can find us on Facebook if you do the social media or Twitter. Mm-hmm. If you want a T-shirt. You can go to tpublic.com. Yep. And until next week, uh, don't murder anybody. Try not to murder anybody. Try your, try your darndest. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.